Okay, uh, welcome to the sixth edition. Is it sixth edition? Uh, six, yeah. yeah. Okay, welcome to the sixth edition of the Comma Press podcast, uh, brought to you in association with Manchester Metropolitan University and the People's History Museum. Um, today we are discussing uh, a series of uh, tragic events which happened in uh, 1981. Uh, starting uh, on the uh, in the early morning, uh, the early hours of Sunday morning on the 18th of January 1981, um, specifically the um, what became known as the New Cross Fire, um, and the event, events which followed it, and perhaps led up to uh, the more well-known uh, events of April uh, at 1981, namely the the Brixton Riot or the Brixton Rising. Um, today we are joined by uh, the Grenadian writer, novelist, uh, poet and short story writer Jacob Ross. Uh, Jacob is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. His um, debut novel, Pint of Bender, was shortlisted for the Common Writers Regional Prize. His most recent novel, The Bone Readers, uh, published by People Tree, won the inaugural Jalak Prize for the Book of the Year uh, by Writer of Colour. And his collected short stories, Tell No One About This, was published in 2017. Uh, a follow-up uh, to The Bone Readers uh, called Black Rain Falling uh, is out uh, from Sphere uh, in August. Uh, and we're also joined by Professor Stephen Reicher, uh, who is Wardlaw Professor of Psychology at the University of St Andrews. He's a fellow of the British Academy and a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Um, and for over 30 years, he's been studying uh, group and collective behaviour, looking at hatred and solidarity, obedience and dissent, oppression and resistance. The reason why Stephen in particular uh, was uh, very apt to uh, comment and consult on this particular story was not only is, uh, not only is, is he a, a professor of, um, of crowds and group activity uh, and, and, and group behaviour, uh, but he was uh, spending a lot of time in uh, Lambeth in South London at the time of uh, uh, the New Cross fire, and he uh, even uh, personally attended uh, one of the key moments that followed uh, the the New Cross fire, which was the uh, uh, Black People's Day of Action. Um, Stephen, could you give us a bit of a, a sense of the context of South London and uh, the relationships between uh, the black community um, and the South London kind of public generally uh, and the police at the time? Mm. So let me start by giving you a little bit of personal context. Um, one of the reasons why I was on the Black People's Day of Action was um, in 1980, I was uh, a member of the National Executive of the National Union of Students, and I was responsible for the campaigns around racism. Um, now, this was a period where there was huge concern over rising racism at a, at a series of levels. So we mustn't forget that in the, um, in the late 70s, the National Front was becoming very powerful, um, that in local elections in London, they got up to 16% of the vote. And this is an openly racist party. I mean, far to the right of UKIP, um, a, a, a neo-Nazi party, getting 16% of the vote. And it's argued that the reason why Margaret Thatcher came to power in 1979 is that she, in a sense, she won over part of that vote by, uh, by using racism, that famous or rather infamous speech where she talks about a natural fear of being swamped. Uh, and that uh, won over, as I say, sections of the vote which led to her victory on May the 3rd, 1979. So we're talking about a general context of racism, 
We're talking about the new Nationality Act of 1981, which was a clearly racist act, which uh, apportioned uh, nationality, being British, as a function of race. And in that context, we're also seeing rising uh, tension between state agencies and black people, notably the police. Uh, Swamp 81, this huge stop-and-search operation which disproportionately stopped black, pe uh, stopped black people. So there is, a, there is a, a major context, a major sense of being embattled, a sense of racism, a sense of being victims of uh, injustice and inequality at an economic level in terms of policing. And that's the context in which this terrible tragedy happens, in which 13 young people are killed. But the response, in many ways, what is emblematic of everything and which, which exacerbates everything is the response to this tragedy. It's not a sense of mourning that 13 children have, have, have lost their lives. It's to start blaming the victims. It's to start saying what well, they were responsible. It's to make up stories uh, that it was a fight at the party. It's to further demonise black people such that they are the danger even when they die. And even more symbolic of this was the fact that Margaret Thatcher did nothing. She didn't send any letter of condolence to the family. It was only a few weeks later that she made any response, and even then she didn't speak to the family. So, so there was a sense, a really strong sense, that not only was this event emblematic of a much wider uh, climate of racism that was endorsed by the government, which was enacted by the police, but the, the reaction to the event added insult to injury. And just to walk us through uh, the events of that evening, um, it was a party that was that was held uh, by teenagers. Uh, it was a teenage girl. It was a joint uh, birthday party, and uh, the fire was reported as starting in the early hours, and. Um, there was, uh, as you say, 13 people died, nine died on the night, four died later in hospital, and two years later, um, one of the people at the party committed suicide. So you could say it was 15 victims. Um, on, the, on the night, um, there were reports, uh, very specific reports, about a white car driving past the building and uh, something being thrown from outside of the building. It was never... It was never kind of uh, uh, confirmed by any particular inquest, um, but there were reports that something was thrown from um, from the building, um, uh, f sorry, from the street into the building through the front window. Um, as you say, uh, th these uh, th the the report was that it was a, a white Austin princess, so it's very very specific. Um, much later on, uh, it turns out in an inquest that. Uh, the, the fire started on a sofa in the front room, which is not uh, inconsistent with that narrative, uh, but it, it did disprove um, one line of inquiry which the police were pursuing despite uh, witness reports at the time, uh, which was that it started through uh, a fight. It started through a brawl. And as you say, that's, it ca that kind of feeds into this narrative that um, it was self-inflicted, it was, it was caused by... Uh, caused by people at the party, um, it was there was no outside intervention, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you talked also about the fact that Margaret Thatcher didn't write a letter of condolence for uh, at least two months afterwards until she, until it was it was it was raised as an issue. Um, 
it was interesting at the time uh, because a, a fellow author on this project, the protest book, um, um, uh, Martin Bedford, uh, was a, uh, a journalist working for the South London uh, news agency at the time. And um, he remembers at the time there was uh, a similar fire in Dublin uh, where uh, uh, it was a, a nightclub called Stardust Nightclub uh, where there were high numbers of casualties and the Queen immediately wrote a letter uh, of condolences to the parents um, uh, and it was a very similar sort of time uh, and yet nothing was sent to the parents of the, uh, the children that died in, uh, in New Cross and again um, even when Margaret Thatcher wrote her letter two months later, it was addressed to a community leader. It wasn't addressed to the parents. So there's still a kind of resistance to uh, acknowledging uh, any kind of compassion uh, or identification with the, with the victims, uh, with the parents of the victims, uh, from, a, from a state point of view. Jacob, why did you choose this story initially to write about? When we put this book together, we came up with a number of kind of uh, protests and flashpoints and, and uprisings. Um, uh, and uh, you, you, you chose Brixton, but you, uh, Brixton riots, which happened uh, two months after this event. Um, but you, you also chose to not focus on Brixton itself, but this, this kind of this possible trigger. Yes. Um, because it, it had so many of the elements of, um, and that's speaking purely from the perspective of a writer of fiction, so many of the elements that, that make for, for good, strong narrative, you know, a horrible triggering incident in the case, and in this case, it, um, it was the, 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 the burning alive of young people who are at this point of fantastic, optimism they were just you know sick the, the ages were between 14 and 22 these were young people on the threshold of adulthood they were celebrating a birthday and um i think the young the woman in question the one whose birthday party it was yvonne roddock i think her name was uh you know she i think that she had just also um, gotten or was awaiting the res her results for her GCSEs and so forth. Um, so, so, yeah, so, so we had th that, uh, that awful thing happening uh, which set in motion a whole series of processes, uh, not least uh, the police and the investigation, the absence thereof, a mysterious figure um, that people claimed they saw that, as a matter of fact, um, uh, even Rolock's mother um, literally said that she would go to her grave knowing that a police officer had told her that it was reported that they had seen someone throwing a firebomb into the, into that building and running away. And that, that was a line of inqui inquiry that was not pursued. It was dropped quite promptly, as happened, in fact, with the, the inquest subsequently, which didn't last very long, as one would expect of an inquest. But for me, um, what mattered a lot and perhaps mattered most was the human interest narrative. We're talking here about um, if it's 13 people who, who died and there were, 20, there were 27 injured, we're talking about, you know, multiplied by, by two at least where the parents are concerned. And then think in terms of the profound psychological impact that had on a community, uh, uh, you, uh, you know, uh, where the children are doing something perfectly normal, perfectly standard, perfectly safe. And of course, 
um, as Stephen mentioned earlier on, it had not just silence can be a kind of indifference uh, or even a dismissal. But that indifference was expressed. There was an MP, I think her, her name was Gil, her name was Gil, um, something Gil, uh, who, 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 on um, getting the, the, the news, talked about, you know, the, the, the noise that, you know, these young people make in the neighborhood, of course, talking about black people and so on. Um, so we, ha we had, we had, we had that, that, and that, that for me was really interesting. I, I, I also was interrogating a whole range of other stuff. It, 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 there, there was this perception, um, and there has been for a very long time, of, of Caribbean people as, you know, being, I don't know, semi-educated, people who work, you know, either cleaning or, you know, in the case of the men, they work on the rail, you know, on the railroads and, and, and they build this and whatever it is. And I wanted to present another kind of Caribbean character who, who was also very present there. And it's a highly skilled, highly educated Caribbean person. As happened with, you know, in the 1950s, we had a lot of our writers or authors, some of the, some of the, the, the region's best intellectuals amongst them was um, Vidya Naipaul. And there was, direct, you know, well, called George Laming, people like that. And they were here in this country. And so when, 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 when we talk about the Caribbean, talk about Caribbean people, there is a tendency to think of Caribbean people only as if you like a kind of workforce or that, that, that came into this country to do manual labor, which is not true. There were, uh, there were pilots, for example, who um, fought in the, second, in the Second World War as pilots, Caribbean, and, and they were not mentioned. And I, so I wanted to, to sort of present a character was very different from the one we normally, you know, perceive. And she's an intensivist. She's a highly qualified doctor, as happened, as is the case with one of my, my relatives here, a niece of mine who was an intensivist. So I wanted to do that. But for me, it's it's just, it's about loss, and it's also the culmination of a narrative that began a very long time back. We can talk about the Notting Hill uprising in 1958. 19, it was 1958, yes, 1958. Um, and it was, it was quite thematic uh, in, in the sense that the kinds of assault that the West Indian, that's what they called them in those days, community, um, was experiencing manifested itself in several ways. Um, one of them was the bashing, which was the, uh, and in, in, in the 50s, it was the, um, what they call them again, the teddy boys, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, you, you have these special boots, you know, and so on, and they would kick their heads in and stuff. Fine, uh, that was one element of it, but one of the, the trademark of the National Front was putting um, filth and fire, the two Fs, into the homes of, 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 of black people. And in 19... Setting fire to, to, to envelopes. To place, yeah, to place, yeah, and putting it through the home. But not, you know, and there were, there were two fires before that. Because this is, you see, the, the New Cross fire was not simply a one-off. It was, there was a theme running through. So, it, for example, in 19, um, 1971, there was a similar, a similar um, attack where 22 people got, got, got um, seriously injured. I don't remember the, 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 the street and the address, but you know, it's there, it's verifiable. Um, we had one of, the, in Lewisham, there was this, uh, this club where literally lots of West Indians from all over London would gather and so on. That was fired, that was torched. So you had the, 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 the torching. So when, when that happened, 
the you know that the burning of um this building when the fire started in that building and children got killed again it was a culmination of a lot of you know what had been happening before it was quite quite um it, it was a theme rather than just a, a single incident and all of that all of that interested me thank you and uh Stephen, the the next sort of stage in this was there was a there was a meeting uh a week later um on the 25th of january at the moonshot club uh in newcross which was attended by over a thousand people um and they set up the the newcross uh, massacre action committee um and various people in that uh, that movement then went on to organise the uh, Black People's Day of Action. Um, what do you What do you remember of that time? Because, as I say, you were you were spending a lot of time in South London. Uh, what do you do? What do you remember of the sort of build up to that event? Well, I mean, first of all, it's worth mentioning the Moonshot Club was one of the clubs that had suffered an arson attack. Yes, <laughs> and and in in so, I mean, one of the first reactions was a, a sense of dismay at the complete abandonment of common sense, in a way. I mean, if you think about it, you're talking about a context where there has been a number of incidents of arson on black targets, where, as Jacob says, the National Front um, use fire and have uh, attacked houses with fire, where there is a report of something being thrown from a car. So the obvious line of inquiry is to look at that, is to ask, well, was it a racist attack? That would seem to be pure common sense. And to turn it around and to completely dismiss that and to start talking about these young people as the cause of violence betrayed such a deep and entrenched racism which cannot see black people as victims. It can only see them as perpetrators that it, it seemed completely emblematic. It, it seemed, if you like, iconic. All the issues, all the issues that people were suffering at every single level from the government, from the police, from the National Front came together. It, 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 it was a symbol. And if you didn't respond to this, you weren't going to respond to anything at all. And so there was huge anger because this was part of something much larger. This was something where, you know, a line in the sand had to be drawn, in a way. And so the planning started, and there was huge support, and the movement uh, went towards this remarkable uh, demonstration. It, it, in many ways, the first large-scale collective response by uh, the black population, this, this, this People's March, between fifteen and 25,000 people on the 2nd of March. And, and, and it reminds me you know, of, the, of, of, of that well-known uh, Shelley poem where he talks about rides like lions out of slumber in unvanquishable number, shake your chains to earth like dew. Ye are many, they are few. It, people discovered their power in number. By coming together, they went from being disparate, isolated, atomized to a force to be reckoned with. And that's what was so powerful about that day. But there's something else about that day, which I think is captured so well in, in, in the piece, which I, you know, I enjoyed massively. Because it, it, I remember the experience, because you go along to this event, and at one level... I mean, it's desperately sad. It's desperately sombre. But on the other hand, 
it's finally an act of reversal. It's an act of discovering yourself collectively. It's an act where you've been silenced for so long and you speak. The streets are places where you're harassed and you own the streets. You march through Fleet Street and normally your voice is silenced and, 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 and Fleet Street talk about you and distort your reality. Now you silence them, chanting at them for their racism. And there's that in that reversal of conventional relations of power, there's something about these events, these mass events, these are collective events, which is always carnivalesque and has that joy. People were dancing, people were smiling, people were embracing each other. The, the distance between people evaporated. So it's that combination, you know, the, the sour and the sweet, the, the, the tragedy, and yet that sense of possibility, which, which I still remember from, what is it? It uh, uh, tells me how old I am, sadly. It, you know, it, 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 it's you know, nearly 40 years ago. It's, I can still see it, and I can still hear it, and I can, above all, remember that sense of joy and possibility. But despite your memories of the day, mm. uh, it was still reported um, in the usual kind of racist mm. terms. The headlines in the, in, uh, the evening, mm. uh, London Evening Standard and other news uh, tabloids uh, the next day were focusing on the... Uh, there was a slight, a slight scuffle um, at Blackfriars uh, where the, mm. the march insisted on taking its own route through Fleet Street despite the police's attempts to divert it. And, and those small scuffles and outbreaks of, uh, of tension with the police and, and conflicts with the police were the things that were reported. Not this carnivalesque sense of unity uh, and coming together. Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. I mean, the headlines are things like uh, Day the Blacks Ran Riot in mm, London, mm. Black Day in Brackfriars. I mean, uh, use of racist language yeah, in newspaper yeah. headlines, which is yeah. completely unreflexive. So, no, it's not that racism went away. That didn't change. What did change was people's sense of we're no longer isolated and weak we have come together and we're going to do something about it. We're not going to take this lying down anymore. That's what changed. Mm. And yet time and time again, the same things happen. When something uh, positive comes from the black community, it's portrayed in negative terms. When something terrible happens to the black community, they're portrayed as the problem. So in many ways, the demonstration and, and the reaction exemplified the problem, but it was also the birth of a sense of, well, we're not going to take it any longer, the birth of a solution. Now's possibly a good time for you to read the passage, Jeffrey. Okay. Or did you want to say something else, sorry? Yeah, I, I wanted to add, um, I mean, all the points that, that, that Stephen um, is raising are really very important. But there's something which, which, which I wanted to sort of insert also. One of the things that the old British colonials would have known and what those in the metropolitan centers here in the 20th and 21st century do not seem to be aware of is the, tr the history and the tradition of protest rooted in the Caribbean. You know, what we call marronage. Um, and there comes a point when, when uh, Caribbean people uh, the, the, the predominant um, representation here are Jamaican, would say, no, that's it. You're not going any further. It happened on Goldburn Road. It happened, you know, you, you, there's a time when people just say, you know. 
and, 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 and again, we, a lot of the slogans that were coming out um, from the, the protesters, you know, the black communities and so on, they had all reverted back to the old Creole languages of the Caribbean, you know? And then, of course, you had this, this amazing coalescing voice in Linton Quasey Johnson. Uh, you know, he, he was such an important um, cultural figure to the extent where his voice reached the Caribbean. We were, we were following this through him and his, prote and his protest. Um, and I think that this is something which maybe mercifully the British administration never understood. It's that, that, that Caribbean people can be pushed only up to a certain point. And I know that they brought forth a whole range of sociological explanations for it, that these young people are rebelling and they, they have inherited the anger of their parents. I don't know if you ever heard that, but um, Thatcher had an advisor, a black woman, who were giving them all this kind of nonsense. Uh, and so, so that, I think, was, was extremely important. But it's also led me to, 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 to think, too, that um, riots or uprising is a kind of renegotiating of the social contract, if there is one, is saying, you know, you are not doing well by me. My understanding is, and, and in a way, Britain is ripe for one of those, you know, one of those uprising, actually, you know, because the, 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 the kind of dissonance between what, what the social expectations are in terms of you know economic whatever sharing sharing and the wealth of the nation and so on it's 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 so um so divided now so broken that i think you know and and the the, the kind of channels of communication have been broken as a result of either not being listened to or because of bureaucracies that just prevent people from articulating that so that in, 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 the only way to find a voice is by smashing things or, or by protesting, at least getting onto the street and making noise. I think that that's, that's what happened um, in the 1980s, the 70s, and the 50s with Caribbean people here. It's that they, when they try to speak to power, so to speak, power is no, there's no structure in there. There's no channel through which they can speak. And therefore, they had to act. And look at what happened, you know. The powers responded in their own way, but they, but they did. I think that for me was quite important. I've always been very suspicious of, uh, suspicious of the press, of the UK press, and that includes the BBC. But uh, that's another discussion altogether, because um, it's the middle class speaking like the middle class for the middle class and on behalf of the middle class. And once we understand that, I think that everything else is falls into perspective. That's all I have to say about that. But Tonight, an anchor man is sitting behind a curved blue desk in a green silk tie and crisp white shirt. The TV headline is The Eight Hour March from Fordham Park to Hyde Park. A man in a pressed blue shirt faces the camera and is talking on behalf of the uniforms about the inconvenience of disrupted traffic, the clampdown on criminality and lawlessness. The TV flashes a newspaper headline, The Day the Blacks Run Riot, then takes her to the rain-slick streets of Brixton. It pauses on the backs of hatted West Indian women in closely buttoned coats, shoulders folded against the drizzle, carrier bags dangling from their fists. The camera slides over the blurry shapes of youths in beady hats, 
hands stuffed down their trouser pockets, leaning cross-legged against the music record shop and the wide glass frontage of British home stores. It is a tour, selective, she thinks, but fascinating nonetheless. She's seeing the way they see. A short pause on the graffiti along the railway bridge. Thirteen dead and nothing said. Blood I go run in 81 if justice now come. White vans parked in shadowed side streets. Uniforms in tight formation at street corners. And now the camera closes on a dreadlock. Hair sticking from his head like horns. A matchstick in his mouth. He is staring straight into the lens at her. Like it's still winter, you know. But it's hot out here, real hot. All man got to do is put a match to it, then boom, car, Babylon harassing and don't pressing brethren for nothing. And man tired of them rascal sauce. The camera follows him up the street, his walk something between a shuffle and a bounce. Then it cuts back to the crisp white shirt. Trust them to pick a face that frightens them, she thinks. Thank you. Um, so, Stephen, uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, events which led up to the Brixton riots themselves, the Brixton uh, rising of uh, the 10th to the 12th of April, 1981. Uh, in the evening of the 10th of April, Friday the 10th of April, um, a young black youth uh, uh, called Michael Bailey um, is um, is seen running away from another uh, group uh, of young men, uh, uh, and it turns out he's he's wounded, um, and police try to try to stop him, um, and uh, he regards the police as kind of instinctively as somebody as people that are not going to help him even though he's injured and needs hospital treatment others start to intervene and feel that the uh, police are not helping him uh, he's he's put into the back of a police car when uh, he should be put into a, an ambulance and um, you you get the situation where people uh, surround the police car and pull him out of the police car against the police will and then put him in a taxi to go to hospital um, this incident is then uh, reported and perhaps misreported and uh, by word of mouth, um, and uh, it's seen as the trigger moment on on that day, that evening, uh, for what follows the next uh, forty eight hours of of, of rioting, uh, in which um, uh, eighty two people arrested, two hundred and eighty uh, policemen report injuries, and uh, there were forty five injuries to. Uh, members of the public, um, almost 150 buildings uh, are damaged, many of them uh, burnt. Um, do you see uh, this, uh, do you see the kind of link that um, Jacob presents? In Jacob's story, it's a fictional story, he, uh, but he has a character who is so appalled by the events of the New Cross fire and the misrepresentation of the New Cross fire and the fact that nobody... Uh, is doing anything about that? Um, that she she starts to disseminate um, uh, photographs of uh, of one of the victims uh, amongst the community. That's a f that's a completely fictional uh, mm -hmm. kind of addition to the story. Uh, but it's it's this this sense of a kind of a collective distrust and complete breakdown of uh, of uh, of trust or faith in the in the police, uh, which is which is the kind of 
powder keg, which uh, Brixton riots happens in. Do you do you see the kind of link which Jacob has drawn between um, the new new crossfire um, and uh, the black Black People's Day of Action and Brixton riot, or do you see the Brixton riot? Uh, starting in, in the kind of narrative that I've given, which was just a, a kind of reaction to one particular event. I, I don't see it as a simple alternative. Yeah. Um, I mean, I read the story in a sense as a metaphor, as, mm. as a sense mm. that there is a link, um, and that the understanding of what happened uh, in New Cross informs people's interpretation of what happens to Michael Bailey. Because when you look at any right, uh, there tend to be, if you like, three levels of explanation. One is to understand, if you like, the broad social structural context, uh, a, a sense in this instance of, of racism, uh, a, a sense of exclusion, a sense of mistreatment. That then translates into something more concrete in the interactions that people have with authority. If you have a sense that the, uh, you know, the system is racist, the system is an abstraction. Being stopped and searched on the street, uh, as happened to so many people in Swamp 81, makes the other concrete. You know, it's not the system, the system has the face of the police. And then you have particular incidents which seem to encapsulate everything about both that broader context and that antagonism with the police. Nearly all the riots that have happened, uh, certainly in the UK, happen with an encounter where there is a sense that a black person has been mistreated by the police, and then the police have been insensitive in the way in which they've dealt with that. They haven't had a proper dialogue with the community. That's true in Brixton in 81. It's true of Toxteth. It's true of 1985. It's true of 2011 as well. And I think the link to me between um, what happened in that terrible fire and what happened in the day of action and what then happened in April is twofold. The first is that frame of interpretation, that it gives people a sense that the police mistreat us at every single level, even when they're victim, even when we're victims, they mistreat us. And therefore, they see what happens to Michael Bailey through that interpretive lens, that lens of mistreatment and that lens of racism. And even if on this particular occasion, that's not what was going on, Nonetheless, it's understandable by people would see things in that particular way. And the second, and I've already referred to this, is the issue of empowerment. That what came from the day of action was a sense of, we're not going to take it anymore. Jacob has already read out those slogans which are about uh, blood's going to run in 81 if we don't get justice. Well, people didn't get justice. And people saw what they thought was another instance of injustice. And that's when the blood began to run. So those are the links. And I think they're very important links. They're not conspiratorial links. It's not that anybody was planning it. Um, those are often the uh, types of explanations which are used in the media to explain things away. This doesn't reflect anything larger. This doesn't reflect a wider problem. This doesn't uh, reflect a long-standing sense of injustice. It's just somebody was organising it. No, it's about, as I say, a sustained experience 
which then is used to interpret a particular event, which then leads into the process of riot itself. Yeah, I think it's a it's a kind of coalescing of a range of um, elements, and in a way, I'm probably replicating what what you're saying, Stephen, because the, the economic and social conditions of you know that particular community at the time was it was incredibly you know difficult, problematic in the rate of employment. Um, so it was fifty five percent amongst young black men. Yeah, and and the fact that what we were experiencing then was um, moving, you know, the, the business, the manufacturing in which many of these, you know, manufacturing industry, uh, small, you know, many of these young people would have been involved or gotten employment that was being decimated. Um, so that that move on the part of the Thatcher um, government at the time towards a kind of service economy as opposed to a manufacturing um, economy had already begun. We, we weren't aware of it then probably, but certainly um, that was one of the manifestations of it. So you had that. You had you know, the worst housing conditions, uh, and then you had these these narratives which um, had already begun to embed themselves in people's consciousness about their relationship with the society and with uh, uh, and, and you know there's a concept we, uh, I use in narrative when I teach narrative called resident evil which is to do with the exactly what you were saying Stephen, the physical expression of the institution is the police yeah the police are the agents of this nebulous um, you know, notion that we call the state uh, and in one sense the police uh, and don't forget that in the six days before leading up to the Brixton riots, there were 943 stops and search. There were over 20,000 police officers deployed in this little village called Brixton. And they were brought in. And they were brought yeah, and all over London. In other words, one asked the question was one were, were they trying to trigger some sort of um you know. There was a concept, a term they used in those days called kettling. I don't know if you, you know, and and but kettling is a provocation. What were they up to? What 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 was behind all of that stuff? You know, uh, so that when the, the this young man who got wounded uh, began to run run down the street, and the police officers or whoever it is decided they were going to help him, they had no history of being helped by the police. Why would this be any different? You know, for them, it's a hostile act. Precisely because whenever the police, um, you know, all, throughout, for the past m several months, the police ways, the police's way of expressing or interacting with them is in fact, in a, you know, a hostile manner. And as a consequence, I can understand why they would have, a, you know, they would not trust that. But, and also somebody, as happens in these situations, um, the role of rumor is always very interesting. Um, somebody, uh, or voices began to amplify the situation. That amplification, for example, um, at one point somebody said that when he when he had gone when they had taken the, the, the young man to the hospital, somebody said that he died, mm -hmm. and the police killed him. And all of these things, you know, is a as I said, is a coalescing of what memory, of lived experience, of social and economic condition that finally re reached a critical mass and exploded into this thing we call riot. But I'm wondering, Stephen, if 
because I have a lot of problem with the word riot. Um, and somebody has been very careful, or some people have been very careful, to um, certainly name the Notting Hill response of social unrest, you know, as the Notting Hill uprising. But we still talk about the Brixton Rat. But the connotations we have come to give to Rat um, as a negative thing, you know, as, 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 as an expression of a certain kind of lawlessness, which is what, in fact, we were getting a lot from, from, um, from, from the, the, the government at the time. Like the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, was talking about it's criminal, she's cr criminal, 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 you know. There is no excuse for it. She would, d didn't want to understand or want, didn't want to accept that it had its roots and other things. I find a lot of the, the people who are young people now who are writing the, his, the, social, the social and political history of, of, of black Britain and now interrogating was like riot. So they would talk about, they use the word revolt. They would use protest. They would use rebellion even. But riot is, in a way, you know, interesting um, as nomenclature. But that's not the word they would use to describe their experience. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's quite right. And mm. I mean, if you, if you look at the origins of uh, ideas about uh, crowds and collectivity. Um, it grows up in the 19th century with the uh, growth of a mass society where people mm. become uh, urban masses. Um, they become concentrated in uh, factories, in working class areas. The whole notion of the mass is a source of fear because the dominant classes uh, are terrified that the masses come together will will challenge them. So collectivity is always a source of fear. And one way of dealing with it is to, um, uh, well, basically to insult it, to treat uh, the collective as somehow irrational, as negative, as destructive, and so on. And we see that at every single level. Um, if you want one example, for instance, uh, a this time uh, uh, as a function of class, not race, uh, you know, we talk about crowds at football matches because they tend to be working class. You don't have the crowd at the opera. Mm -hmm. You have the audience at the opera yeah. or the audience <laughs> at the theatre. Mm -hmm. What if we used a word like community mm -hmm. instead of crowd? Mm -hmm. um, now, what, it, it, in a sense, audience is to crowd, crowd is to uh, mob mm -hmm. or a mob is to riot. These are terms of insult. These are not analytic terms. They're not descriptive terms. They're pejorative terms yeah, to yeah, say yeah, this, yeah. Is, mm. this is mindless violence. It's to write out the histories we've been talking about. It's to exclude the context. And if you exclude the context, all you have left is the contention. And you can say, well, these people are just naturally contentious. These people are naturally antisocial. It's all their fault. And what this language in the end is about managing accountability saying it's nothing to do with us nothing to do with our unequal society nothing to do yeah. with our state it's everything to do with something that's wrong with them and that's true of all the languages yeah. of of collectivity yeah well what's what's characterized is for me more than anything um conservatism in this country is the fact that it never deals with the causes of any kind of given problem. It deals with the manifestations, you know. It deals with, with um, so, you know, people are poor. It's therefore that they're poor, but we'll give them some money or 
a bit of money, but they have to work for it. Of course, they have to be means tested. It never attack. It never addresses the, the the root problem, and that that kind of gloss, that sort of um willful ignoring of social inequality, uh, is for me one of the great issues that I think exists here. You know. I mean, there's an absolute pattern of explanation that you see each time there is collective disorder, well, riots, revolts, uprisings. Okay. It's to say that last time it might have had something to do with racism, it might have something to do with inequality, but this time is different, we're told. This time it's they just went mad, or this time it's because they're criminals. Right? So what you saw was that in... Um, uh, in 81, people said, this time, this time they're just criminals. Then in 85, people looked back and said, well, perhaps in 81, it had something to do with racism, and perhaps it had something to do with poverty, but this time they're criminals. 2011, it was exactly the same. People came out and said, well, 85, we know with racism. So last time, when you're no longer accountable for it, and when it's too late to do anything about it, you accept, because it's blindingly obvious, that there were structural and ideological factors, there was injustice going on. This time, we're told, is always an exception, but this time is never an exception, because there is always a context of inequality. There's always a context of oppression which underlies these instances of, of, of collective violence. But isn't, it, isn't this a function of the media, really? The media always has to tell us that uh, the present is different, and the present is modern, and you need to be excited about it and and scared about it and there's no lessons to to learn from history because that's old news this is new news it's part it's partly the media but i think it's very much uh something to do with politics yeah. and politics of power mm -hmm. after all in the end the justification of government is always that the government will secure the social order so you give up a little bit of your freedom you obey laws laws so you can live in an orderly society and go about your business so when there is disorder then the justification of government is always in questions and governments have always got to say we didn't create a context in which people want to riot we didn't create such inequality that people were desperate. We didn't silence people such that the only way they can have voice is by going out on the streets. So in the end, I think the explanation is a political explanation and the explanation of those with power who want to hide their responsibility for the anger of those who lose out. Do you feel that that's sort of uh, that's borne out by the way in which uh, the law was initially changed after after Brixton in eighty one? There was the Scarman report, uh, which in uh, I think November that year came to a conclusion that uh, um, there was there was a degree of provocation uh, by the Sus laws, um, and then the Sus laws were dropped in late eighty one, um, and then. Um, there are subsequent incidents like the Stephen Lawrence case uh, and the McPherson report uh, in 1999 found, uh, took, coined that phrase institutional racism and found that the Scarman report's um, uh, recommendations had never really been uh, implemented. Um, and then come 2007, um, David Cameron, who's leader of the, uh, the Tory party at the time and the opposition, starts to promote an equivalent of the Sus laws 
um, and saying we should we should give more powers back to the police for uh, for stopping people on, on suspicion, um, and 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 Gordon Brown kind of follows suits and and brings in a kind of new sus law. Do you think that um, th- what you're talking about that that sort of uh, um, retention of power uh, is what caused the sus laws to be resuscitated, so to speak, in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight? Well, let me talk about the 2011 riots Mm -hmm. and let me talk about what's happening today in in order to answer your question. We've just finished a a, a large project (coughs) looking at the 2011 riots and looking at the spread of conflict in the 2011 riots. And we find almost exactly the same pattern as that which I've been describing, a broader context of recession and racism, which puts the most vulnerable young black men in particular out on the streets where they come into negative contact with the police and stop and search all that is that sense of antagonism that sense of the police as the other uh, exemplified in the killing of mark duggan and blaming him for his killing by claiming he was shooting first all those factors are critical statistically you can show the boroughs where there's rioting are the more deprived boroughs You can also show that the boroughs where there is rioting are those where there is a greater rate of stop and search. So you can show this uh, structurally, you can show it statistically, you can show it anecdotally. All these things are going on. And what's happened since? Well, in the last few weeks, a number of reports have come out showing, first of all, that because of the recession, because of austerity, more and more youth clubs are being closed, putting people on the streets. That the racial inequality in terms of rates and stop and search have become worse. Black people are even more likely now to be stopped compared to white people than they were in 2011. That all those factors are still there. Now, it still requires a particular incident It still requires, uh, if you like, a particular miscalculation by the police and a failure to engage because all these things need to come together for there to be disorder. But we do have those broader conditions. The the background to the fire next time is still with us. um, And I think the possibility of an incident which will lead to such a riot is ever with us even now. I agree. Um, a triggering incident, something that that that, that touches the crumple buttons of of of, of um, the communities concerned, and uh, it's interesting to see how how um, we have a sort of cross pollination happening because you find somewhere along the line that white working class, white working class youths join those protests quite often. You know, they come out and they throw stones also in smaller numbers, uh, which, of course, might be indicative of the fact that there is something that says to them that the problem is not simply you know, only a racial one. The problem is to do with, you know, our class and social circumstance and economic circumstances and so on. But, as a, yeah, what, what are we waiting on now? What are we waiting for now? And what will happen if it goes the way it's going based on the rhetoric I'm getting from from the media, what I'm hearing from the police force, uh, it, there, there is going to be another blow up because the pattern is, the conditions are there, the pattern is the same, 
stop and search as a result of the naive crimes that are happening all over London now. There is, you know, a serious move on the part of um, the police uh, spokespeople um, and the government to 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 um, implement stop and search by another name. You know, um, and I, I I suspect that. But don't, do do you think, Stephen, that don't crowds and crowd responses evolve over time? You know, um, you know, isn't there? You know, does it become more sophisticated? Does it become? Does it change its nature given the context or given where one is in society? And also, just to add a question, 2011 is just is kind of known for the the Blackberry riot. You know, the Blackberry factor. Everybody was rocking these uh, Virgin ten pound a month uh, Blackberry phones, and the the questions in the house were, you know, how can we stop these kids from? Uh, communicating and spreading riots through new technology. Does new technology play mm, a role? Yeah. Uh, new technology plays a role, but you can't reduce things to new technology. Yeah. See, when 2011 happened, you've got the classic explanations for riots. There are always three explanations of riots, right? One is the notion of the mob, people going mad. So people who are or ordinarily reasonable people put them together in the crowd their irrationality uh, their rationality goes they become just these mindless people who'll just do anything that's number one the mad mm. mob the second is the bad crowd that the crowd is made up of bad people of yeah, criminals bad elements. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and the third is if you like the bad leading the mad agitated theories um, in 2011 it was gangs mm. gangs were directing people now again these are all explanations which try and avoid two obvious points. The first is a riot is an interaction between the crowd and the police, so you've got to look at the, what the police do. And secondly, you've got to look at the wider context, which we've been discussing, uh, which leads to a certain sense of anger. So the notion of blackberries and gangs and so on was part of this agitator type of notion, that it just came down to a few people uh, you know, herding uh, the mindless mobs. And actually, the government quite quickly dropped the notion of gangs when it became clear that the number of gang members involved was actually very small indeed. So it's an element of it, but if you make it too much of the story, you're not explaining things, you're explaining things away. Now, in terms of the evolution of, 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 of events, it evolves on two levels. It evolves within a particular event because what the crowd do is a function of how the police respond. What you often find in a crowd event is that uh, the crowd is actually very mixed with different voices within it. Some voices arguing for uh, discussion, mm. some voices arguing for confrontation. Now, what happened in Tottenham is that the police systematically ignored those who called for dialogue. Mm. So it starts when the family go to Tottenham Police Station and say, we want, we want explanations. We want to know what happened to Mark Duggan. We want to know what happened to our child. And nobody of senior rank came out to speak to them. Some were on holiday. Another senior officer was policing a football game at, at, mm. at, at Tottenham. But the, the consequence was those who uh, sought conversation and conciliation were systematically snubbed 
and ignored. So they left, leaving the field to those who were more radical, those who said, look, there's no point talking to these people. We've got to show them what for. We've got to take them on. The second thing is that when some people in the crowd might attack the police, how the police respond then determines whether things escalate or de-escalate. So if the, people, the police respond by treating everybody as if they were criminal, by um, using tactics which, uh, which catch you up whether you were there or not, by battening people or charging people who are just standing around, if they use indiscriminate tactics then the violence tends to generalise. People who said, look, I've got nothing against the police, I'm just seeing what's going on. Once they're attacked by the police, they begin to go here around those more confrontational voices. So a crowd event is a dynamic event in which the initiation of violence and the spread of violence is critically dependent upon what the police do and how the police treat people. Yeah. And it and runs as a thread through all the, 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 the uprisings of the 1980s and 1950s. The, the key de detonating element in there, and that's not my word, that's the word of, a, um, of, of, of an ex-police officer, is usually the police. Yeah. Um, I was just going to quote a couple of uh, lines from, uh, from Thatcher and Ted Knight at the time. Thatcher, as you said, said, um, nothing but nothing justifies what happens. Um, Money, money cannot buy either trust or racial harmony. Mm -hmm. um, in, in, to counter that, the Lambeth uh, <coughs> London Borough Council leader, Ted Knight, said that uh, the police pre presence amounted to an army occupation that yeah. provoked the riots. Uh, and Thatcher responded to that saying, what absolute nonsense and what an appalling remark. No one should condone violence. No one should condone the events. They were, as you said, as you quoted earlier, criminal, criminal, criminal. Mm. Um, there is a sense that that's the political response to these events. Uh, I remember vividly um, uh, David Cameron in 2011 coming out and making that message clear. These these are criminals. Um, they they uh, the government got magistrates uh, working through the night for three or four days uh, round the clock, uh, prosecuting uh, thousands and thousands uh, of of cases um, to to uh, kind of not only to, to, to put people away and to punish people and to sentence people, but to also establish this, uh, this simple narrative that it's criminal, criminal, criminal. And the, the story of the, or the image of the people stealing um, LCD TVs or uh, whatever they're called, uh, uh, flat screens TVs and running, uh, you know, and, and looting TV shops. That was the image that the uh, the media presented uh, on that night. It was the the story of Mark Duggan was kind of lost to the broadsheets and to the you know page eight uh, of the newspapers. They were, it was no longer the focus. The focus was on criminality, criminal, 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 uh, as Thatcher said. Um, you both agree that we're sitting on a powder keg now. Um, uh, many of the conditions, the sort of social uh, context in, in many communities is very, very similar to, to 81 and uh, Broadwater Farm in 85 and Tottenham in 2011 and the other communities that kind of rose up uh, at that time. It's, a, it's an impossible question, but if you could press a series of buttons like some kind of omniscient creature um, and all-powerful, godlike uh, agent... Uh, if you could press a series of buttons to stop um, the next the next uprising from happening, stop the next riot uh, or explosion from happening, what would those buttons be? 
Well, Cameron's term, his phrase was criminality pure and simple. Mm. Now, um, if anybody tells you that something as complex as a riot is either pure or simple, <laughs> then they're bound to be wrong. Right. The second thing is that the government didn't only put forward very inadequate explanations, it tried to stop explanation. They would say that if you try to explain the riots, you're trying to explain them away, that you weren't allowed to comment upon the riots unless you started off by condemning them. Now, I'm a social psychologist. Social psychology is a discipline which grew up after the Second World War in large part to explain the Holocaust. How could it be that so many people were slaughtered simply because of who they were, not because of anything they'd done? And it was conducted mainly by Jewish scholars. I, I myself am Jewish, which is why I became passionate about this discipline. And of course, people try to explain things, not to explain them away. I want to understand racism not because I, I, I want to ignore it, but because I want to understand it to do something about it. Now, I think everybody would agree that actually riots are not a good thing in the sense that we don't want a world in which people are so desperate that they have to take to the streets. And that only by understanding why people do take to the streets will you be able to address the conditions which led to it, only by an honest appraisal and by listening to people. Because Martin Luther King famously talked about riots as the voice of the powerless. And the thing is that when you look at a riot or a revolt and you look at how people act and you look at what people do and what targets they choose and what targets they don't choose, it reveals to you their view of the world. It's an incredibly valuable resource to get an understanding of what it is that has led to this phenomenon. And I think, in many ways, the most culpable response of the government in 2011 wasn't what they did, it's what they didn't do. They didn't launch an inquiry. They didn't look at the problems of economic inequality in our society. Of course they didn't, because they're perpetuating them. They didn't look honestly at the issue of racism. And now we're being told that racism is no longer really a problem. We don't have institutional racism in the metropolitan police. To me, I'm not going to pretend that we know everything. What I do think, however, num is number one, we do need an inquiry into, it's probably too late for 2011, but the position of our marginalised groups in society, black people, but also, I think, uh, you know, white working class youth who live precarious lives. We need to look at the problems they face and make those a priority in our politics. We need to look at the consequences of austerity and how they've affected yeah. those groups. And only if we do that will we be able to deal with the problems and stop, uh, or at least uh, it may be too late now, but lessen the likelihood of there being riots in the near future. Yeah. I subscribe to that. Um, I don't think it's going to be on long racial lines. I don't think that the next um, whatever it is um, that's going to happen is, is going to be uniquely along racial lines, or even predominantly along racial lines. There's a perverse analysis. I have a very good friend who's a, he's a physicist and thinks 
you know, in, in the way physicists do. Uh, anyway, we were talking precisely about the referendum that we had recently. And he said to me that everybody sees, sees, sees it as a negative, you know? Um, and he, he says, but the way I see things, you're going to talk about valences. And th that referendum allowed people a little opportunity to, he didn't use the word riot, but mm -hmm. to protest, mm -hmm. you know? And then in a way, it, he said, it, you know, in his view, it was almost like it was diffusing a little bit, but he didn't think, and he's very, very, he's very middle class and very, very, whatever. But, he, and he, he, he says that he, he carries with him an unease about the kinds of problems that the society is going to have when people begin to respond to all of the deprivations that they're experiencing. Um, and that, that's a deliberate policy. It's deliberate on the part of the current government, this whole erosion of social support, you know, at all levels. I mean, I, I, I was listening to a program on, on the radio this morning, and it's appalling. You know, you're talking about people who are in this country who are literally starving and can't, can't find food. You know, in England, the sixth richest country in the world, that makes no sense. And I, I do think that, that if there is going to be any kind of serious social um, unrest or upheaval, it's not going to be simply along the lines of race. Mm -hmm. But it, it would be, in my view, a kind of conglomeration of an accretion of all of these elements together, if it's going to happen. How would I stop it? I'm not sure I want to, <laughs> to be honest. There was a sense for 2016, as you say, that this, th these, there were uh, whole swathes of the country that were being asked the question, uh, being asked their opinion, and it was the first time in their lives they'd been asked anything other than their party allegiances. Uh, and, you know, they were all saying, you know, pardon my Anglo-Saxon, they were all saying, fuck, fuck off, fuck this. Yeah, I'm going yeah, to yeah. vote for whatever you tell yeah, me yeah. not to vote for. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. But it was, but it was a, it it was a kind of a seismic and traumatic moment, which we're obviously still yeah, failing yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah, failing yeah. to resolve to and recover yeah. from. Can, can I say something about race? Talking of you know, the, you know, the the brilliant Caribbean writers who've come to this country. Mm. Uh, one of my favourite writers is C. L. R. James. Yeah, um, oh yeah. For for mm. so many of what he's written, I mean, yeah. to be the greatest ever analysis of culture and sport is on a boundary. Yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, an amazing yeah. book. But there's a point where he argues that the revolt of black people stands, if you like, as the, um, the model for rebellion of all groups. That youth cultures look to black cultures mm. because youth in rebellion looks to black people in rebellion. If you look at the music which young people listen to, including racists, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, ironically, it's nearly all black mm. music. It's rock and roll. It, mm. It's rap. It's, mm. I mean, about the only music which doesn't fall into that category is country music, which is why young people don't on the whole listen to country music. Now, my first study of crowds was in 1980. I was doing my PhD in Bristol when the St Paul's riots happened. And St Paul's was described at first as a black riot. But first of all, St Paul's was not 
the area with most black people in Bristol. There were other areas. And secondly, about half of people were white from St Paul's who took part in the riot. But when you talk to them, and when they talked about their experience, they talked about their experience in racialized terms. So even if they weren't black, they understood their experience through black experience. They would say, look, being from St Paul's is like being black. If I go for a job and say I'm from St Paul's, I won't get that job. If I'm in St Paul's and I'm walking through late at night, I have problems with the police. So it was a racialized experience, even if they themselves weren't black. Now, that distinction between, if you like, race and right and racialization and right, I think is critical to understanding 2011 and the future as well. So after the riots happen in North London, in Tottenham, in Hackney, in Enfield, they then spread south of the river. They start in Brixton, um, and that has a lot to do with black people coming together at the Splash uh, Festival. Uh, it has a lot to do with a sense of identification with those in Tottenham and Hackney as being black. But then in Clapham and Croydon, a lot of people are saying, look, I recognise my experience in their experience. In, they take on the police who harass them, or we feel harassed by the police as well. And we see the police as vulnerability, and we feel empowered to take them on. So again, their actions are informed through race, but it's not simply a matter that black people riot and what pe white people don't. So I think it's very important to understand the importance of uh, black experience, if you like, as standing as the, uh, the symbol for revolt and rebellion of all groups. Thank you. Mm. Okay, well, um, thank you, uh, Stephen and Jacob, uh, for a f uh, fascinating discussion. Uh, the urge to, to, to protest, uh, if not to riot, uh, will we'll continue. Um, uh, and thank you, Manchester Metropolitan University. Thank you.